Now please join with me in today's scripture reading from Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 33. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, last verses in chapter 5. We've been looking at chapter 5 for the past few weeks, and, and when looking at this chapter, we're We've been reminded at how to look at these verses. Firstly, chapters 4 and 6 are for those who believe in chapters 1 through 3. So if you don't believe in chapters 1 through 3, then um, you don't have to be offended by chapters 4 through 6 because they're not for you. The latter part of chapter 5, this is the second part to keep in mind, is that uh, it's not just for married people because the focus is on Christ and the church as Myra read in verse 32. Now, people may read these verses today and think that this way of thinking is just so archaic. This was 2,000 years ago. How can you possibly think this now? Um, and things have changed. And it's true that they have, but it's God's word 2,000 years ago, and it still is today, even though cultures change, and cultures change all the time, but God doesn't. And God's word does not change, and we can trace our rebellion to God, back to Genesis 3, when ever since then people have thought that they know better than God between what is good and what is evil. We as Christians, we are called to be holy people. And the closest synonym that I can think of to holy is uncommon. Uncommon people. Unholy is synonymous to common. So we are uncommon people. We are set apart for God's purposes. And ever-changing culture does not dictate who we are or who we become. We are made in God's image, and we realize that we do not know better than God what is good and what is evil. And we realize what God intended from the beginning, from creation. We are those who believe in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And we believe what the apostle wrote about who God is, what God did, and why God did it. Now we can take a look back at a story where the Pharisees attempted to test Jesus. Well, he tested, they tested Jesus about many things. But one of the things they tested Jesus about was divorce. So take a look at Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus knew that from the beginning, from creation, he truly knows the difference between what is good and what is evil, and he tells them what it is. And so when we look at matters of life, we may be tempted to look at things from this cultural 
lens that we're living in right now or a historical lens from what we've experienced or what people in our ancestry have experienced. But as believers in Jesus Christ, it is very important for us to look at things from the perspective of God's revelation to us. And for the believer, this is primarily through the Word of God. And when we look at a matter such as marriage, there are even deeper things to keep in mind. We need to keep verse 32 in mind. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And yes, obviously there are aspects of marriage that are very mysterious. Right? Like, um, for example, how is it possible that your spouse loves you so much or that you love your spouse so much? And that's a mystery. Right? How is that even possible? Because what's not a mystery is how they wouldn't love you, right? That, that's not a mystery. Or how much you wouldn't love them. Like, that's not a mystery. Like, I know lots of reasons why I don't love that person, right? That's not a mystery. But the other way around, that's kind of mysterious. Like, how, how is that possible? But we won't get too far into that because tomorrow's Valentine's Day. So let's, let's, just, let's just skim over it. Let's go. Let's move forward. But the greater mystery is Christ and the church, verse 32, right? That's the greater mystery. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Remember when Paul prayed for the readers of this letter in chapter 1? Right in the beginning of chapter 1, I know that was a really long time ago, but it ties into these latter chapters, and it's really important to remember so that we know why Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glory, glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now I want to bring our attention to verses 17 through 19. There's some pretty incredible verbs in there that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. You see, anyone can read these same words just as text. But you won't be transformed by these words if you just read them as text. You have to have the Spirit reveal this to you. Open your eyes to this. And we know that people can read the same exact words, but if you don't have the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know, then they won't believe. They can't believe. 
See, the scriptures are not simply just words on a page. They are a living word, the living word of God that speaks to us wisdom and revelation to know God. It enlightens those of us who believe. If you don't believe, it won't have the same transformational impact as it does for believers. And this is what we want as believers, isn't it? For the word of God to enlighten us. To enlighten us in our marriage, in our relationships, which points to this greater enlightenment of Christ and the church. And this mystery of Christ and the church is the hope we have for peace among those who could never imagine having peace with one another. And Paul points back to the Jews and the Gentiles, how they were so hostile to each other, how they hated each other, and they had nothing to do with each other. They were once a people who despised one another, but those in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, they were reconciled with one another, not through their own means, but something mysterious, a mystery, that God took very different people with very different worldviews who were antagonistic towards each other and brought them together in the love of Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel does. And that's just one picture of it. And when we look at Christian marriage, we see this union between two forgiven sinners. That is not a surprise why you wouldn't like them. The mystery is why you do like them. Who have been given this empowered potential to live together in harmony. And this is part of our witness as Christians within a Christian marriage that despite our sins and our differences that divide us in our marriages, there's this model of Christ and the church guiding us where the bride, the church, submits to the bridegroom Christ. And the bridegroom Christ sacrificially loves his bride, the church. And our society and culture are so broken it is so fractured that it needs so much grace that it needs in order to be restored. And there's this opportunity for our Christian marriages that are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak into that. That through our marriages, there is hope. We're showing the world that peace is possible because look at us. We're so different. And when we fight, we reconcile. And when things break down, we build back up and we fix and so there's this continual example that we can show the world that peace is possible. And, and the greater divide, the greater hostility is actually the more we need God in those times, right? When you're in that deep valley, when you're really struggling, then you actually seek God more and you're actually pleading with God more, please help me. See, evangelism and discipleship, they take many forms. And it can be simply observed while... You and I live our public lives, such as when somebody cuts us off on the freeway or standing in that really long line at Costco. Like it's just. And you'll notice it's when things aren't the most harmonious where that evangelism and that discipleship has its brightest opportunities. It's then. And it's just like our marriages. You shine brightest when you're in the darkness and you come out of it and that's when you're the brightest. Or just like now in our pandemic. I don't know what God is going to do and there's so many things that are just so unclear at the church. 
but I'm anticipating he's going to do something really great. We're going on year three, right? And uh, I'm expecting something really great if we stay submissive to Christ because we already know that he loves us, that we need to be obedient, that we are holy, that he has a purpose for us. And so we need to stay humble and not to think that we know what is good and what is evil more than Christ knows and that we wait for his leading to guide us as to what we're going to do next. So I ask that you would join us in prayer as we seek what he has for us this year. And we, we have our annual meeting coming up in the early part of March. And so I'm asking for your prayers for us that we have patience, that we have humility, that we are obedient and sensitive to the voice of God as the bride of Christ. And what is unclear to us is very clear to God. That God is not surprised by things. He knows what's going to happen. Now back to our text this morning, verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. In Christian marriage, that's what this is speaking of, if you're a believer in chapters 1 through 3, there is a leaving from the parents to unite to your husband or, or your wife. And so in a Christian wedding ceremony, the groom leaves his mother and father and stands here without them, and he's waiting for his bride to come down the aisle to this altar. And the, and the bride walks down the aisle, and the parents then ceremonially hand their daughter to their future son-in-law. And then they go through this public ceremony where people witness the exchange of vows. And when the ceremony is finished, it's very clear that this couple now is married. Right? It's like it just shifts. They were single when they were apart, and then they came here and they did what they did, and then they're married. So they were single one moment, and then now they're husband and wife, and they shall two become one flesh. Two individuals becoming one. Now, of course, you don't lose your identity as individuals. Christ is Christ, the church is the church. Our individuality isn't lost in marriage, but our individuality is transformed by marriage since we were two, but now we're one. And so from that point on, you still honor your parents, but the relationship has changed with your parents. And if it doesn't change, you'll have marital problems. It's that simple. I've done a significant amount of marital counseling because of this very issue. Verse 31. This, I don't know, I'd, I'd estimate a third. A third of all the problems are this. Where a child does not leave their mother or their father. Usually it's the baby boy not leaving mommy and daddy's girl not leaving daddy. It's usually that, but not all the time. Your husband... Your wife needs you to leave your parents and be one with them. And so you need to leave emotionally. It doesn't mean that you cut off communication with your parents, but it does mean that you need to be very mindful about how much you share about your spouse with your parents or with your siblings or with your family. That you need to take this role as a, a gatekeeper to keep what is private, private, and honor the wishes of your spouse. You need to leave them financially. 
if there is a financial tie with your parents, then they have a say in what they've contributed to. Yes? And it may not be what your spouse wants. Right? You, you need to also leave them physically. Now, of course, there are always good reasons not to do this part, but you need to consider what your spouse wants. And I understand when, when parents get older and, and they need to move in with you, I think that's honoring them. But there are many other circumstances when married children haven't left their parents physically, they haven't moved out, and that causes problems. And again, there are many reasons why parents and kids live together, but hopefully it's just temporarily for whatever reason, and it's not like a forever thing. Now, in over 20 years of pastoral ministry, there's so many scenarios that are running through my head that wouldn't have been an issue if the married couple just did what the Bible instructs Christian couples to do. And one of the big ones is leaving your father and mother and joining in one flesh. I'm not sharing this with you as one who has figured all of this stuff out. I'm sharing this with you as a father of four daughters. And there's a likelihood that one day they'll all get married to a knucklehead. I'm going to interrogate that knucklehead. Of course, I'm partially joking. But not the interrogation part. I will do that one. But I have to do everything as a father pre-marriage. Right? Pre-marriage. Because once they're married, they leave. That's it. Her bills are yours now, you know? <laughs> and they're going to have to figure that out on their own. Now, of course, I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to support them from afar, but I'm not going to be all in their grill and in their business and stuff like my mom's in mine. <laughs> and here's the thing. But if I contribute to them financially, then I have say. Right? Because if I'm helping you with any certain living expense, like I bought your, help you buy a car, I help you buy a house, I help you start a business then I have say where you live, how much that costs. Is that neighborhood safe? Is that the best place for business? And if you don't want my say, then don't take my money. Right? Very simple. Now you notice the order of verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You don't get to sleep with my daughter unless you marry her. That's first. She leaves me and my wife first and then is joined with you in one flesh, not the other way around. Again, if, if you and your kids don't believe in chapters 1 through 3, then don't worry about this. This is not for you. You're not in this. But this is my family. This is our Christian family who believes in chapters 1 through 3, and this is us submitting to God's word. God's way is perfect, and God knows the difference between good and evil, and I don't want a Genesis 3 problem when I'm tempted with this. Did God actually say, I need to know my Bible so that I can say, yeah, he said that, or no, he didn't say that. 
And he defines what is good and what is evil. You know, on your way here, there were traffic lights, there were stop signs and, and speed limits and traffic lines and bike lanes. All of those things kept us from hurting and killing each other. That's what they did for us. And they weren't put there to make our lives miserable so that we can drive however we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. They are there to help us to get from where we were to where we want to go successfully and safely as possible. And what we're given by God is to bless us on this journey of life. And he gives us those stop signs and the traffic lights and the bike lanes and all these different things to guide us for our flourishing. And flourishing is done within order, not chaos. Right? The lights have an order. They don't just randomly, like, take a guess. Is it going to be red now or green now? Like, they don't do that, right? There's an order. And this is how medicines are made. This is how science works. This is how we learn. This is how surgery is done. People are not healed from chaos. They're healed from order. And God is a God of order. There are things in place for our flourishing. And in our flourishing of marriage, there is an order God has provided to us. And for the Christian, marriage is the only context where sex is to take place. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It's not to make your life miserable. It's for our flourishing as believers in Jesus Christ. But obviously, this is very uncommon. And I want to point out to you, precisely, exactly, because it is holy to live as God instructs. And when we live chaotic lives in matters where God has instructed us on how to live flourishing lives, and in this case, sex, then we get disease. We get selfish actions and abuse and sex trafficking, self-satisfaction, pornography, addiction. That is what is common in our world today, is it not? It is very common. It is very unholy. Sexual promiscuity, having sex outside of marriage, just the selfishness within one's own lust and actions and the pornography and the STDs and the sex trafficking and the sexual abuse are all common everywhere in our world. And the church is to be holy, uncommon. It's not about feelings. I love him. I love her. I want to give myself. No, it's not about feelings. It is about holiness. For Christians, it is about holiness. We are not common. One of the dangers the church is not navigating well is being overly concerned with feelings over holiness. And it doesn't mean we throw all those feelings out and we are to be sensitive. We are to be empathetic and understanding, loving, caring. But the Christian is not to compromise on the truth of God's word. We are to live holy lives, which is an extremely difficult thing to do because it's precisely that. It is uncommon. That's why it's so hard. But God's grace is sufficient for us. How we live doesn't earn our way to God. 
It's not about registering more points for holy living versus unholy living. You know, a lot of times that's how people look at Christianity if you skip chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. They just skip over to 4 through 6 and, they're like, and they get on the ledger and say like, well, I haven't done this and I've done this and, and I've just like, you're just kind of like accounting there. But chapters 4 and 6 look like do's and don'ts to someone who doesn't believe in chapters 1 through 3. But if you believe chapters 1 through 3, then you know that this isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts. That chapters 1 through 3 are all about God's grace. And then when you know God's grace, then this over here is for those who believe in this. And they show us how incapable we are in doing what Paul has laid out. And how desperately we need the grace of God. Because just because you accept it and you believe chapters 1 through 3 doesn't mean you're going to live chapters 4 through 6 perfectly. Actually, you're probably not. And even though we put effort, not the belief that we earn it, but that we put effort to live chapters 4 through 6 and how it instructs us, hopefully we're not stuck in this habitual sin. But hopefully we know that the grace of God, who we learned about in chapters 1 through 3, extends healing, restoration, forgiveness for those who haven't lived holy lives at that moment and they repent. It's all about God's grace. That God initiated that healing, that restoration, that forgiveness in the first place. And it's also God's grace that empowers us and enables us to live as he intends for us for our flourishing, and we're all in need of God's grace, so there's no need for us to judge or condemn other people because maybe you've been able to not act out your unholiness, but the unholiness is still unholy in terms of what's happening in your mind and your desires and your thoughts. So there's no need to condemn others, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't need our help with his job, right? He's totally sufficient for his job. Because sometimes we as Christians, we think like, well, I didn't act on it, so therefore it doesn't count. It does. When it happens in your mind, it still happened. You're still sinning. You're still sinful. Take a look at John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, now in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. See, those Pharisees, they were probably in this camp where I have not committed adultery, like, physically. I didn't act out on things, but they knew very well what was going on in their mind. Right? The lust of their mind. And Jesus is just pointed. I, I'm really interested to know what Jesus was writing there. But um, I'm wondering if he was, like, writing someone's name and then write a line and then this is the lady you were, you know, lusting over, wasn't it? 
Nicodemus, naughty man, you know, like, just like writing it down and pointing like, right, right, guys, you're going to walk away now? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just thinking. Our God of grace, he, his intent is for us to, to live, not to die. That there is forgiveness, that there is restoration, healing and in Jesus, and it's available to you. Back to our last verse, verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. This interesting word here, nevertheless. Paul wrote all that he wrote prior to verse 33, and then he puts in nevertheless. And so Paul puts in this connective adverb to connect this last sentence to the preceding thoughts. That's why this word is there. So essentially, Paul is summarizing the preceding sentences with this. Love your wife as yourself and revere your husband. That, that's the summary of everything that precedes it, right? So rather than thinking about, you owe that to me, or you know, that you, you're supposed to do that, and telling each other what you're supposed to do, and what you deserve. Love your wife as yourself. Give yourself up in a sacrificial, loving way to your wife. And for the wife to respect your husband. Right? In summary. This is so much harder than these short little words here. It's very hard to do. Especially when your wife is unlovable. How do you love someone who's unlovable? And then, on the flip side of it, for the wife to respect a husband who's just despicable. Like, how do you respect someone who doesn't earn the respect? And so these are real issues. But they aren't the deepest issues. The deeper issue is verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the bigger issue. Because our marriages are just going to be this small little blip in terms of eternity. Katie and I, are, we're going on 19 years. Some of you listening to this message, you've been married twice as long. But it's all going to be just a blip, whether you are a newlywed or you're celebrating your diamond anniversary will all be gone. The marriages will be over. But for the short time that you were husband and wife, there's this obedience and submission to God that we'll need to give an account for as believers in Christ. And so have our marriages shown, our extended family, our neighbors, our communities, our churches, shown the world a small picture of the love of Christ for His church and for the submission of the church to Christ. Have we shown that bigger picture? Verse 32. I close with a psalm of David. As you, many of you know, one who is very far from perfect, but a child of God. And he wrote this in Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise or making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the Lord, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know what's fascinating about this psalm? This was all written before his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and before he had her husband killed. So you see how his heart was before and how he fell. And I point this out because somewhere in your life, maybe you were like David, that you were so committed to God and that you wanted to be holy for God, uncommon, and that you were totally in this Psalm 19 mindset. And maybe right now you don't find yourself in that place. Maybe you've done something, thought something, or thinking something that is unholy. And I want to encourage you to look at how David finished. Not how he started and not just where he fell in the middle of his race, because your race is not done. And there's still time for you to humble yourself before God and run the rest of the race that you have well. That you do your part. That your spouse may not be doing their part. And maybe they've lost the sight of your oneness. But you do your part. If you need prayer, please visit us in the chapel after service. We'd be honored to pray with you. Or if you want to fill out a Connect card and submit that, we'll pray for those. The elders and the staff pray for those. And if you're listening online, you can submit those prayers electronically. But you're not done. God is still using you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. We ask, Lord, for humble hearts. We ask, God, for pride to be removed from us, especially for those who need to reconcile with their spouses today. There are so many who are divided, so many who are hostile towards one another, and we pray for miracles in some of them because there's so much hurt and hostility in them that only you can bring them back together. And so we ask for humility, Lord. We ask for husbands to love their wives sacrificially as Christ did the church. And we ask for wives to respect their husbands, which is so difficult to do because sometimes they don't deserve it. And yet you direct us this way, and it is uncommon. It is holy. So we pray for your spirit's empowerment and enablement to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's take communion together. This wonderful sacrament of reconciliation. If you don't have communion elements, just 
Put your hand up and we can get that to you. That top wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. His sacrifice for us. The bridegroom loving us sacrificially. Let's take this together. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, may we not lose sight of your love for us. May we continue to remember what you did for us. And I pray, God, for holiness to be in this church in Jesus' name. Amen.